The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. We are joined in studio by... Marilyn Stern, who's always here, and she'll be producing our show. But uh, we have Gary Gamble still on leave, and we have our guests who will be joining us later today as well. First, at the top of the hour, we will be joined by Andy Zemanidis, the executive director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, who I just joined on a panel back on Monday in Washington, D.C., focusing on Recep Tayyip Erdogan's Turkey. And then at the bottom half of the hour, we'll be joined by Shoshana Bryant, the senior director of the Jewish Policy Center. We often don't get into domestic conversations here, at least as they relate to non-Middle Eastern or non-Islamist-related inklings, but I do have a few questions with her on the massacre in Jersey City that took place yesterday, December 10th. But now for the news. We see that the repercussions of the Jamal Khashoggi murder have still been going on throughout the United States and the rest of the world especially as it affects Saudi Arabia's diplomatic interests. The State Department announcing Tuesday that Mohammed al-Taibai, who served as the Saudi Consul General in Istanbul when Saudi journalist Khashoggi was murdered, is barred from entering the United States. I would also be remiss to not discuss the other massacre that took place last week at Pensacola Naval Air Station. As a result of the murder of two U.S. airmen, just beginning their road becoming naval aviators by Saudi Air Force 2nd Lieutenant Mohammed Saeed Al-Shamrani, who acted alone when he attacked the U.S. Navy base in Pensacola. It's become unclear now what the future of Saudi aviation interests and training will be in the United States. More than 300 Saudi Arabian military aviation students have been grounded as part of what the U.S. Navy is calling a safety stand-down after that Saudi Air Force lieutenant shot and killed three people last week in Pensacola, U.S. officials told Reuters on Tuesday. The FBI says that U.S. investigators believe that this lieutenant acted alone when he attacked, but it is very unclear when the Saudi students will be allowed to fly again, when their classroom training is expected to resume, and if the more than 850 Saudi students in the United States for military training will be able to continue on their different regimented training tracks. The issue here with having a country, any country, being able to take advantage of the largesse, the professionalism, and quite frankly, the best military training available in the West, in NATO, by dozens of other countries that have strategic alliances with the United States, and the fact that it can be ruined by one soldier committing an attack, what they call in Afghanistan, green on blue attacks. But here in the United States, we had a green on blue attack on our own soil by someone who was supposed to be an ally, not someone who was a conscript, the draftee. We're talking about an officer here, someone who was selected from the best of Saudi Arabia's best to not just become an officer in the Saudi military, but to go to the United States to become an Air Force pilot. There's only three or 400 of them in all of Saudi Arabia. At least combat pilots. There might be others who are focused on logistics and cargo flights and helicopters. 
But it's especially sensitive that it's a Saudi pilot. I mean, these guys can't get a break. They keep on coming to the precipice of being able to reconcile their last misdeed carried out by a member of their own country. And we find them in a situation where they have, number one, a diplomatic murder gone wrong, which should never have happened in Turkey. Then they have the Yemen war that they have to worry about. Then now they decide to reconcile with Qatar. I mean, they were finally making some right policy decisions and they've acquiesced to that because it seems as if though Qatar's media barrage was able to one-up them. And now, without any ability to control, of course, except maybe they have to improve their selection and vetting process, one of their own nationals goes and kills three U.S. servicemen. While allegedly there are six other Saudi pilots who are filming the incident taking place. This is what the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, said a few days ago. But we still don't have all the details as it relates to these murders that took place at Pensacola Naval Air Station. My recommendation to the Saudis, do whatever it is that you can to cooperate on this investigation and hire some really good PR and information warfare and strategic communications consultants to root out whoever is causing you problems within your own kingdom and get your act together. Because it's certainly not helping those who are trying to advocate for the value of that relationship here in the United States. More on Saudi Arabia in the news. Other countries seeking to use U.S. technology to develop nuclear power plants must agree to comprehensive U.N. inspections under legislation to be included in this year's National Defense Authorization Act, which will be announced as early as this week, two Democratic congressional aides said on Monday. The measure, spearheaded by Democrat Representative Bradley Sherman, which requires countries to sign the so-called additional protocol, will require the International Atomic Energy Agency to conduct snap inspections of nuclear power facilities to ensure countries cooperating with the United States are not developing materials for nuclear weapons. Pivoting to Iran, according to Trust.org, French President Emmanuel Macron said on Tuesday the imprisonment of the two French nationals in Iran was unbearable and demanded their immediate release, in a case that complicates French efforts to diffuse tension between Washington and Tehran. Macron was quoted on saying on Twitter, On Human Rights Day, my thoughts go to Fariba al-Dakha and Roland Marshall, our compatriots held in Iran and their families. Their imprisonment is intolerable. They must be freed without delay. This is what I told President Rouhani. I repeat it here. Paris reported the arrest of Marshall, a senior researcher at Sciences Po University in mid-October, while his Franco-Iranian colleague al-Dakha has been in prison in Iran since June. On the other side, however, Iran has warned its citizens, particularly scientists on Tuesday, not to visit America, saying Iranians there were subjected to arbitrary and lengthy detention and inhuman conditions. You want to talk about lengthy and arbitrary detention and inhuman conditions? If they're saying that the United States did it, they probably learned from the Iranians in Evan prison. I mean, let's focus on this for a second. In the last month, since these Iranian protests have started because of a spike in fuel costs and the tariffs that the Iranians have charged on their domestic fuel prices, according to Brian Hook, the U.S. Special Envoy for Iran, over a thousand Iranians have been cut down and slaughtered in the streets of Isfahan, Tehran, Isfahan, uh, Shiraz, and other Iranian cities. More than 8,000 have been imprisoned without trial and without charge. The Iranians should be the last to lecture to the United States how 
our prison conditions are being held. Two more stories. We'll go to a break and then we'll bring on our guest. The GCC summit on Tuesday showed signs of a thawing relation between a host of blockading countries and Qatar, even though there was no concrete progress in solving the two-year diplomatic crisis, according to Al Jazeera. Saudi King Salman, who afforded earlier the Qatari prime minister a traditional welcome, called for regional unity to confront the Iran and secure energy supplies and maritime channels. A closed-door meeting lasted less than an hour before a final communique by the six-member bloc, comprised of Qatar, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Oman, emphasized the need to increase military and security cooperation to maintain regional enmity. There were also calls to achieve financial and monetary unity by 2025. And last, and this is a good segue of how we will start speaking about our next subject on Turkey and Greece. First, the European Court of Human Rights was told Tuesday that Turkey must release philanthropist and human rights activist Asman Kavala. The 62-year-old was arrested in November 2017 and accused of organizing anti-government protests in Istanbul's Gezi Park four years earlier. The court cited a lack of reasonable suspicion that the applicant had committed an offense. Erdogan has personally attacked Kavala, calling him the agent in Turkey financier George Soros. And lastly, Greece had lodged objections in the United Nations over an accord between Libya and Turkey mapping out maritime boundaries as a violation of international law, a Greek government spokesman said on Tuesday. Greece expelled the Libyan ambassador in response to the deal this week, infuriated at a pact that skirts the Greek island of Crete and infringes, in Athens' view, on its continental shelf. After these messages, our first guest. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance, in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. Our next guest is someone I had the pleasure of sitting on a panel with in Washington, D.C. last Monday, focusing on the topic of Turkey and what's next for U.S. policy regarding either, depending on how you look at it, this Democratic ally or Earthwheel Rogue State. Andy Zeminius, the executive director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, has spent over a decade at the intersection of policy and politics. He practiced law in Chicago, specializing in municipal law and government relations, 
served as a senior advisor to the Illinois State Treasurer and Democratic for Senate, Alexei Giannalias, and served as the non-resident fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We had previously served as an Emerging Leaders Fellow. He got his BA from DePaul, his MA from the University of Texas in the UK, and his JD from Georgetown University Law Center, where he was a fellow in the Harris Institute for Public Law and an editor of the Georgetown Journal of International Law. Andy, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us last Monday. If you can give us um, a few points really quick on what you think of this recent Greek complaint to the United Nations on the Turkish or even Libyan, I, I would say Turkish-enabled Libyan infringement on Greek maritime borders. What is this indicative of? Uh, you know, you, you closed the last segment saying, is this a democratic ally or a rogue state? And I think this is yet another indication, this move that Turkey took with Libya, a move uh, to prove that it is a rogue state. Democratic allies play by the rule of law and, and play by rules set between allies. Uh, what what uh, we've seen this week uh, with Turkey and Libya, uh, Turkey's move with Libya, is Turkey trying to emulate what China is doing in the South and East China Seas. Uh, Turkey believes that the Eastern Mediterranean uh, and uh, perhaps the Aegean Seas are there, its lakes, uh, and it can draw up the rules. And what it did is it created an agreement with this uh, government of questionable legitimacy in Libya um, to, to delineate maritime borders, which don't exist. Uh, Turkey's waters and Libya's waters, under any definition under international law, do not uh, do not touch. So they created a legal fiction, uh, which makes it, it makes several Greek islands, but most importantly, Crete, one of the biggest islands uh, in the Mediterranean, and home to NATO's southernmost base, Suda Bay, uh, not exist. So this agreement says Turkey's waters extend, you know, basically to Crete, Libya's to Crete. Crete doesn't exist. And voila, we have a budding uh, maritime exclusive economic zones. Wow. So basically, this is another effort in Turkey trying to usurp international law to its own favor because it thinks its own version of being able to dictate or give out diktats in the Eastern Mediterranean trumps any other form of conventions which may have been agreed to by their international bodies. Now, let's focus on Libya again for a second. I heard a little bee that was telling me after our conference took place on Monday in Washington that it's not just Turkey trying to uh, figure out its, its, its fake maritime borders with Libya, but it is considering sending troops to Libya under a military agreement that it's about to side with the GNA, the Grand National Assembly in Libya. And I've even heard and this is something which has been reported on extensively in the Arab press, especially coming out of Egypt. There was an article on this in al Swat a few days ago, that there are Qatari financiers at a base in Malta giving instruction and logistical support to Turkish unmanned aerial vehicle pilots that are giving UAVs and other drones to the Tripoli government of the Libyan Islamists who are using these drones to commit attacks against Khalid al-Haftar, who is himself a uh, secular autocrat backed by the Emiratis and the Egyptians 
who holds control over Benghazi. But are, are, are Turkish military assets being used to help fight the Libyan civil war? Well, right now, uh, Erdogan, this is not even, we don't even need to speculate because Erdogan declared that he would send uh, Turkish military to defend the GNA. Uh, Haftar yesterday actually declared that he would uh, sink Turkish vessels if they came into Libyan waters. Uh, And very much like Syria, this is becoming uh, a proxy war with Turkey and Qatar on one side and the Saudis, Emiratis, uh, and the Russians uh, backing Haftar. Turkey is trying to sell this move and its support of the GNA here in Washington as a, a stand against Russia. And it's, it's remaining apologists in, in Washington, D.C., uh, both in, in the policymaking sphere and in some think tanks are, are going along with that. Um, but as Haftar advances, and again, with the help of, of the Russians, there is uh, a greater possibility of, uh, of Turkish military assets being actively involved in, in Libya. And beyond that, I mean, this is not the only deployment of Turkish troops that we've seen in the region. Another issue we didn't touch on on Monday, but I really wanted to, to speak to you about, is the envelope strategy or sort of the, the circumference of the deployment of Turkish military assets. We, we've just addressed Libya. There is now a Libyan, not a Libyan, a Turkish military base which has been set up in Qatar outside of al yeah. Air Force Base, separate from the American deployment there. You have the Turks speaking about deploying in Djibouti, of all places, to to ostensibly assist with the uh, maritime security initiative there to stop Somali pirates. But I think it's actually just extending their reach out there. And then there's another shadow development to this deployment of not just military assets, but also intelligence assets. We have reports of kidnappings taking place by the MIT, the Turkish National Intelligence Agency, not just in Middle Eastern countries against their uh, Gulenist erstwhile foes, but also in Mongolia. There was a plot that was disrupted in Kosovo. What does all of this mean? Well, you know, and there's there's one more that somehow flies under the radar screen because the world has become numb to Turkey's occupation of Cyprus. But remember, uh, Cyprus is like a permanent aircraft carrier in the Eastern Mediterranean. Right, right. And I, I'm remiss. I apologize. I should have brought that up first. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry. A lot of people, a lot of people don't. Uh, and again, because it's a frozen conflict, people don't understand that, that Turkey keeps 40,000 troops on this permanent aircraft carrier. Uh, it's a speedboat ride away from Lebanon. People may remember during the 2006 war with Lebanon, American citizens were evacuated to Cyprus. It is a half hour flight away from Tel Aviv. It's very close to Syria. Uh, And, you know, one of the things that has kind of flown under the radar is Turkey is investing in uh, anti-axis and area denial capabilities on their facilities in Cyprus. Well, who are they going to deny access to? Right? The <laughs> Russians have a base. The Russians have a base in Syria, right? Uh, a base that's ten times larger. Uh, the Israelis are there. The Egyptians are there. Greece is in Suda Bay. Uh, so you know, there is 
there's a this seems like a move directed at NATO allies, uh, the U.S. Navy that sometimes comes over there, the French Navy, uh, who is considering which is considering building its own base in Cyprus. So um, there's Turkey is really extending its reach. It has a goal. Erdogan has been quite open about this about being a great power, not a regional power, a great power. And this is why people should be worried about uh, Turkey's nuclear ambitions. But uh, there is a quote that should have tipped us off uh, a long time ago during his 2011 uh, election, where people, you know, very few people paid attention to this because he was still in favor at the West, in the West. But I'll, I'll read you from his victory speech where he says, believe me, Sarajevo won today as much as Istanbul, Beirut <laughs> won as much as Izmir, Damascus won as much as Ankara, Ramallah, Nablus, Jenin, the West Bank, Jerusalem won as much as the Bakir. So uh, he's been very clear about his more than limited regional ambitions for a while now. This is, uh, this is, you know, it's like a clarion call. The warning lights, the sirens are blazing right in front of us, and we're deaf, dumb, and blind to his regional ambitions. And I mean that not from the people in the positions of being policy analysts and, and lobbyists that are focusing on this issue and advocating for a stronger U.S. term of intervening in Turkish affairs because of the necessity to correct the course of Turkey before it goes off its wayward path or eventually jettison it from our strategic and also tactical alliances. What can the United States do? This is another question that was asked, but what can the United States do to bolster regional allies of the U.S. that are facing Turkish oppression? Sure. Well, the first thing, the U.S., for its own interest and to bolster regional allies, has to hold Turkey accountable. Right, Turkey has this a la carte approach to alliances and international law. Uh, it has violated CATSA. The United States must impose. Tell us, tell CATSA. our listeners what CATSA is. CATSA is the uh, the countering adversaries through sanctions, countering American adversaries through Sanctions Act. It really, in this particular case, it mandated it mandates sanctions on Turkey for buying Russian weapons. Uh, now, there is this canard out there. There's this reasoning that uh, Turkey wanted to buy the Patriots and the Obama administration didn't sell it to them, so they had to turn to the Russians. Let's remember, Turkey in 2013 tried to buy Chinese missiles, and the U.S. put pressure on them, and they didn't take it. The, the U.S. consistently has offered Turkey the Patriot missiles, but without technology transfer. This is a very important point because it ties back to what you alluded to, Erdogan's regional and beyond global ambitions. Turkey has decided to build its, an independent uh, arms industry. They've already built an amphibious uh, semi-aircraft carrier that if they got the F-35s, it would be able to take off from there. They have built killer drones uh, and a lot of uh, those killer drones are reportedly, we know they're being used in Syria. They're reportedly being used in Libya. Uh, and Erdogan has declared 
his, his intention uh, to build their own fighter jet in five to six years. So just transferring American technology is not something that any president should do. And, and by the way, Turkey could have turned to other European allies. There are European milita- uh, missile systems. There was no reason for it to have to turn to Russia. And it turned to Russia in such a way that the S-400 missile system could be tested in Turkey against American technology, against F-16s and F-35s. Uh, this, is, this is not a small risk to American national security. And in fact, last week, Turkey activated its S-400 radar system and it tracked F-16s and F-4s. Uh, so the U.S. has to show Turkey that it cannot act with impunity against American national security, intelligence, and economic interests. Um, this doesn't mean that CATSA has to stay on forever, but without the imposition of the sanctions that are required, Turkey believes that it's going to get away with this. So that's the first one. The second, uh, there are some very encouraging alliances and partnerships forming in the region. Uh, it started about a decade ago with the discovery of natural gas in the Eastern Mediterranean that led to the first of now eight trilaterals uh, between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus. Uh, Then another trilateral mechanism between Greece, Cyprus, and Egypt was formed. Then there was another trilateral, Greece, Cyprus, and Jordan. This culminated uh, in this past year in in something that that got very little attention, uh, unjustifiably so, but the world is the world is a busy place. World news is, is, uh, <laughs> has a lot of headlines. But there was the establishment of the Eastern Med- Mediterranean Gas Forum in Egypt this year. You had the Egyptians and the Israelis, the Greeks, the Cypriots, the Jordanians, the Italians, the Jordanians, and the Palestinians all at the same table, all saying, Let, let's work on rules to, to bring stability and prosperity and a rules-based structure to this region through this energy resource. For some people, this may sound a lot like the European steel and coal community. Uh, The earliest institution of the EU was brought together because of energy, and you're seeing a a similar step in the Eastern Mediterranean. France now wants to be part of this. Uh, In March, Secretary Pompeo turned the trilateral between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus into a three plus one. The U.S. has now participated twice in that trilateral, first through Secretary Pompeo and then through uh, then-Secretary Rick Perry. So there are are a ton of possibilities. The U.S. has to, to, uh, just like it encouraged and provided some political and security cover for those early European institutions. It can do the same for these Eastern Mediterranean institutions, create reliable, predictable allies, and signal to Turkey that this train is leaving the station without you. The Eastern Med Gas Forum did not issue a communique telling Turkey, you're out. They did not taunt Turkey. In fact, there was a unanimous communique telling both Turkey and Lebanon, if you want to play by the rules, if you want to come and be a constructive player, you're welcome, but you don't get to write the rules. So uh, the U.S. helping that 
that type of structure and those efforts take a next step is very, very critical. Wow. So we only have about three minutes left before we have to get to our break and then our next guest. But if there was one particular action, one egregious action that you could point to in terms of Turkey's involvement, perhaps it's relations with Iran, perhaps it's you know uh, disrupting uh, Greece, what would you want our listeners to know about that otherwise they probably are not aware of? Uh, it's their constant violations of Greece's and Cyprus's sovereignty. Uh, there are thousands of airspace violations in the Aegean by Turkey a year. Uh, Greece spends 2%. You may have seen during the NATO conference, Greece was at the table of the 2% spenders on NATO, and Greece has consistently spent 2% on, uh, on its NATO obligations uh, of its GDP. But a lot of that is being aimed at defending itself against a NATO ally. Think about how much weaker our alliance is because our allies have to defend against a NATO ally. And if we're worried right now, we're worried about people paying 2% or devoting 2% of their GDP to defense obligations. We're worried about small vetoes. Now imagine an actual war within NATO because we're closer to it than we've been a long time. When jets, when there are dogfights every day in the Aegean, right? There hasn't been shooting yet, but last summer there was an accident where a pilot lost his life scrambling to intercept uh, a Turkish jet. The U.S. ambassador in Athens is constantly ringing the bell about a potential accident. If a ship goes down, if uh, a plane gets shot down, we're going to have an escalation of two NATO navies facing off, and we could have a shooting war within NATO, and the winners of that are going to be Russia, Iran, and China. Andy Zemenidis, the Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, thank you for joining us. Thank you. After these messages, Shoshana Bryan. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover key tar from your 80s cover band? 
Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. Fascinating interview with Andy Zimanidis from the Hellenic American Leadership Council. You'll be able to find more of that on the podcast at meforum.org or on our Twitter at meforum. But our next guest is someone I've been wanting to have on for a long time, and she has some recent articles that came out that I want to pick her brain on. Before we get to her, an introduction. Shoshana Bryan is Senior Director of the Jewish Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and editor of In Focus Quarterly. She was previously Executive Director and Senior Director for Security Policy at JINSA, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs, and worked with the Strategic Institute of the U.S. Army War College and the Institute for National Security Studies in Tel Aviv. She has coordinated programs in the Middle East for American military professionals and has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Sun, and Defense News, in addition to the Daily Wire, Forbes, and the American Thinker. Shoshana is a member of the Advisory Found Board of the Aletha Foundation and also is a member of the Board of the American Jewish International Relations Institute. Shoshana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. In a smart article you wrote last month, you write that the Iranian regime cannot fund domestic priorities and international revolutions simultaneously as its financial resources shrink due to the impact of U.S. sanctions. These sanctions, um, and I think this is as you understand them, this is a quote from your article, are not a mechanism for toppling a government, but rather a means of forcing a government to make choices. Judging from the mass protests in Iran, the Iranian-dominated Lebanese protests, the Iraq protests. Do you think that the Iranian regime would seem to have bungled this choice? And if so, can you elaborate? Actually, it's better than that, Craig. They're not choosing between funding revolution abroad and funding their own people. They can't do either at the moment. The sanctions were designed originally in the early 2000s, middle 2000s, to force the choice. And by 2011, we had forced Iran to the negotiating table. In 2015, they signed the JCPOA, which was a terrible deal, on top of which President Obama gave them access to actual money and to credits that delayed all of those choices. President Trump has reinstituted sanctions. We are so good at this sanction thing that not only is there no money for domestic stuff, we have forced them to reduce by about two-thirds their outlays to Hamas, and reduce enormously their outlays to Hezbollah. So they're not just not choosing, they're not doing. And yes, they've bumbled it. So you, you say that we are so good at this sanctions thing. The follow-up question, I'm sure you're expecting this, is, is that when we increase our sanctions, I mean, just this morning, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced a new round of sanctions on the Iranian shipping networks and also Iranian National Airlines foreign sales offices. I mean, the noose is getting tighter. But the reaction to kick out from below the hangman's chair, like they've done with attacks on maritime shipping in the UAE, attacking the um, Aramco oil distribution network in Saudi Arabia, uh, increasing their drone attacks and their attempts to, to, to be able to use strategic missiles and cruise missiles from Yemen, the deployment of IRGC ships off of the Iranian coast in the Persian Gulf, facing off head-to-head with America's uh, shipping assets and our naval assets there. I mean, as much as we can sanction, there's two potential outcomes here. Three, maybe. 
One, they capitulate and change their policy. Two, they continue to act out and it invites a direct kinetic conflict between the United States and Iran. Or three, the regime implodes. Are you ready for steps two and three? Well, since one is highly unlikely, you have to be ready for two and three. And I would say this is where the United States also, at the moment, is taking very smart action. Um, We have increased our forces in the Middle East, in places around Iran. Now, Iran has been attacking us for a very long time. And you could go back to the uh, invasion of Iraq where they attacked our soldiers in Iraq. But even recently, we have admitted that we are under attack in Iraq by Iranian forces. So they're doing it to us now. Uh, The attack on the Saudi oil facility that took place from Iraq was an Iranian attack. We're choosing not to respond at the moment. And I think that's probably wise. Iran has entered the phase of what you could call imperial overstretch, imperial overreach. It has taken down empires, and Iran is an empire in its own way, starting with the Romans and the Byzantines and the Egyptians and the Ottomans and the Nazis and everybody else. Iranian overreach means that they can't hold all the pieces of their empire together. They can't hold together Lebanon and Syria and the internal and the Houthis and all the rest of this. And so what they really would like is to provoke an American attack against them so they can cry, we are the victim. So they poke and they poke and they poke. The United States and its allies in the region are going to have to decide when the time comes to retaliate and how to retaliate. Israel has already begun retaliating against Iranian attacks in other countries, not only in Syria, where they have destroyed an enormous amount of Iranian hardware, But also in Iraq, they have attacked Iran in Iraq more than once. The U.S. is sitting on its heels for the moment. We don't want to give them the opportunity to say they are the ones who are the victims. We can tolerate this for the moment. We're bigger, we're stronger, and any day of the week we can put an end to it. I am not calling for the invasion of Iran. I don't think we need to do that. And by the way, if we attack Iran, I would not look for an attack in Tehran. Sanctions are one thing, but if you really want to put them under and you really want retaliatory action that means something, you take out Carg Island. You keep them from exporting. There are lots of ways to approach this, and I think we've done a pretty good job so far. So you, you offer the idea that any day of the week we could end Iran's aggression, their offensive actions, their defensive actions. Can you be more specific on what you mean by that? Any day of the week we can end Iran. If right. we choose to, and I am definitely not of that mindset. But look, the Iranians in some ways are real, and in some ways are a paper tiger. In some ways they have actual capabilities. In some ways, you know, if you watch the videos when they have a military parade, half the stuff is not real. Sometimes they use Photoshop to show you 75 missiles when they have three missiles. Those are things that, first of all, we have to understand very well. That's where intelligence comes in. That's where we share a lot with our regional allies, and most specifically share information with Israel. The one thing we want to be careful of, actually there are two things we want to be careful of. One is we don't want Iran's response to a U.S. attack to be unleashing Hezbollah on Israel. We don't want to see that. The other thing we don't want is to do an attack that will um, hurt the Iranian people as a people. You know, people say of, of Israel they can take out the Iranian nuclear facility, they can. So can we. 
Unfortunately, Fordo, the most important plant, is built under the city of Combe, which is a civilian city. I don't advocate dropping bombs on it. But it's not to say that we couldn't. You have to differentiate between what we could do and what we're likely to do. Of course. We are I mean, not I mean likely look, we, we, can, we, can, we can nuke Iran. We could send a mother of all bombs, a Moab attack over the capital. We could do precision strikes with cruise missiles off the coast using tomahawks. There's a lot of things we could we do. Can. But when you we say can. any of the day of the week we can end it, I think that we need more certainty, more certitude, a little bit more uh, strategic depth in dictating exactly what it is that we can do so the Iranians become aware of that. Now, you, uh, raise, you raise a few good points. You bring up the ability for Iran's proxies to act out against America's allies and even the United States. I mean, the Hashtal Shaabi in Iraq, the popular mobilization forces, they've been lobbing mortars and Katusha rockets on the green zone and also on some of our bases in Erbil and other areas. Even some people are saying that in Afghanistan, they've activated some assets to attack American interests there. So they do have the capabilities. But I think that the idea where if we take two ends of a bell curve, just imagine this with me for a second. One is what the Iranians are currently doing. The second is where America sits. And as that coordinate for the Iranians gets higher and higher and higher, and as the American response with sanctions or with non-kinetic actions gets higher and higher and higher, and then they eventually have a meeting point, which becomes the first direct kinetic Iranian-American um, um, battle, uh, episode, uh, conflict, um, you know, maybe even a version of Operation Praying Mantis that took place in 1998, which arguably ended the Iran-Iraq war because of the U.S. willingness to intervene. And, and, and you talk about civilian casualties, an Iranian civil jetliner was shot out of the air, which raised great condemnation within Iran itself, but also showed the, uh, the Ayatollahs that America wasn't willing to just stay back as Gulf shipping lanes were being threatened by the IRGC. But I, I think we have to have that conversation in terms of the specificity of what the United States is willing to do. What is, not only a red line, but what are our limits in terms of being able to act? And the more that we have that conversation, the more likely it is that the Iranians, that the Iranians get the message telegraphed to them. Because right now, we may be sanctioning their economy. They may be choking on American sanctions. But my fear is that option two from beforehand, they're acting out, will cause some real damage to American interests and invite a damning American response, which may lead us to a third regional war. Possibly. Possibly it goes the other way. First of all, I'm not a fan of telling everybody everything you know. The Iranians understand who we are in the main. Now, I would say that in the prior administration, the Iranians understood that the goal of the United States in the region was to get out of the region. That's what they understood, and they were correct, and that allowed them to expand without fear of American retaliation. I think you have a different administration now. Oh, wait, we do have a different administration now. The Trump administration has actually done a number of things <clears throat> that reinforced the idea that we are not going to get involved in small regional wars, we are not playing in Syria. We are not going to do, um, we don't want to do Taliban Kabul arguments, but we are willing to defend the larger interests. Look at U.S. policy, for example, in NATO. The joke was that people said we were leaving NATO. Not only has the U.S. put more money into NATO, we have gotten the NATO allies to put more money into NATO, and we are funding the European Defense Initiative in Europe. We are willing to stand behind an alliance that works for us. In the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, 
we are the guarantors of free shipping. I think we're going to guarantee free shipping. An occasional attack, a small drone attack, this is not a shutdown of shipping in the Persian Gulf. We now have 11 carrier task groups ready to go. That's more than we've had in years. We have the ability to go to the Persian Gulf and keep the sea lanes open. That's a job for a superpower. The British did it for 300 years. We do it now. We're not going to get involved in tit for tat. We're not going to get involved in fighting other people's wars. But the administration has shown that on the big stuff, we are there, or we have the ability to be there. So I think the Iranians understand it's a different world. The Chinese understand it's a different world. How far do they want to push us? For the moment, they're pushing. So That's okay. I mean, that's nor- it's not okay. I mean, it's, it's all a violation of, of the rules. <laughs> of the game. It's not okay. But, but, but in terms of is, real politique, it it's TV. okay. It is to be expected okay. that when the Iranians feel pushed, their response will be to lash out in a way that they hope will not invite big retaliation, but they hope will make the United States say, oh, my God, we don't want to do that. We don't want to fight with them. We're afraid of a regional war. I think the response they're getting is uh, no. Now, now you've, you've argued against, then these are some measures which actually might end up helping the Iranians that the U.S. takes, but you've argued against the release of American aid to Lebanon's army. Uh, the Trump administration recently again took off that hold. Lebanese, the Lebanese army was able to get their full funding for this year. You've argued against it. Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah. <clears throat> it's been the U.S. position, and it still is the position of many people in the United States Army, that the Lebanese armed forces represent some form of Lebanese uh, nationalism that is not controlled by sectarian forces. And whereas that may have been true at one time, it's no longer true. And this is why I argue against it. The Lebanese armed forces are an arm of the government of Lebanon. The government of Lebanon is the Hezbollah-dominated government of Lebanon. Okay, it is an arm of the government, and we cannot forget that. In a conflict between somebody and somebody else, that that army will respond to that government. And if it's war against Israel... The Lebanese armed forces are not going to take up arms and fire on Hezbollah. They're going to fire on Israel. So what might have been true many, many, many years ago, that the Lebanese armed forces represented a non-sectarian piece of the country, they no longer do. They are now an arm of Hezbollah. And the more good stuff you give them and the more training you give them, the more that training will be either passed along to Hezbollah forces or used against Israel directly. And by the way, one of the things that you see in the Lebanese um, rebellion is that Hezbollah soldiers are out there rebelling with the people against the idea of going back to Syria. They don't want to be beholden to Iran, okay? But they'll tell you right up front, they will still attack Israel if necessary. That's Hezbollah talking. Don't take our young men and send them to Syria to die in Syria. But if you want us against Israel... That's different. If you support the Lebanese army, that's... Well, uh, of course it's different. Hezbollah is raising the thrives to fight Israel. I mean, their ability yes. to continue receiving arms from Iran was predicated on its willingness to sacrifice its sons in Syria. But in this term, I mean, the Lebanese armed forces and at least all the rhetoric which is coming out of almost all national leaders, whether it's Sunni, Druze, Shia, Maronite, I mean, there is no Saad Haddad anymore. There is no SLA 
the fund and, and this is a clear point that has to be made to the administration. If you give money to the Lebanese armed forces, it will eventually be used for the training purposes of attacking Israel. Precisely. You know, that's it. That's it. Red line. And, and, and there's people still in their government that are still pushing this, even though American sanctions have now choked off all the Lebanese banks, which arguably was the rise of the credit crunch and the cash crunch, uh, uh, the lack of, of, um, of hard currency, right? There was runs on banks that have been taking place over the last two months. We just had Tony Badran on. Uh, the other week from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, Lebanese National. He is arguably, he's one of my favorite Lebanese analysts or Lebanon analysts that are and out there. And should be. Tony Badran is wonderful. Very, very, very much so. And he says, how could you stab not just the Lebanese national movement, which is protesting against its own government by funding these soldiers who have been used to put down soldiers? You know, they've, they've been separating themselves in the middle of Beirut between those who are anti-government and those who are pro-Hezbollah. And I'm not saying that pro-Hezbollah guys are also pro-government. There's a big uh, uh, fallacy there. But you can't give money to a group that's eventually going to fight another ally that you also fund. I mean, it, it makes no sense. Look at it from the 10,000-foot level. The United States arms and trains lots of soldiers from lots of countries and lots of groups from lots of countries who may or may not share our interests. When we arm and train them, we make the assumption, the mistaken assumption, that not only do they want our training, they want our values, they want our alliances, they want what we want in the world. Um, I hate to say this, but that guy who shot up the Pensacola Naval Air Base was a Saudi who came here to get his training from us. We assume that those people are like I us. Think that, I think that's a straw that man, is- though, Shirin. I have to call you out on that. I mean, look, the Saudis were here uh, because, and I'm not trying to defend Saudi Arabia, they had piss-poor planning as it related to their vetting of individuals. No, they, they, they didn't go forward. Yes, there we're was... We're not going to disagree. We're not disagreeing on this, Greg, okay. because there are an infinite number of times that we have allowed people to walk away with our training and our weapons and ultimately, when push comes to shove, they kill the people that they want to kill. They don't yes, kill the people yes. that we want but, but to an kill. Individual so soldier, the- but an individual soldier versus the arming of hundreds of millions of dollars to you a national army. Big, the big Saudi, difference there. You can take out the Saudi pilot if you want. That's fine. Okay, but, Still, but, but, but I think maybe the better level. example is what we had Andy Zemenides just say, that there is the United States providing training to Turkish pilots and the United States providing yeah. training to Greek pilots. We are providing them with their aircraft and their anti-air defense systems, and now there's dogfights going over the Aegean Sea. That yeah. is an example that might be a parallel to Lebanon and Israel. But we, we only have a few minutes left here, and I really want to get to another article that you wrote, which is um, covering the U.S. Democratic primaries. And you wrote in this article, responding to the growing tendency of the left-of-center political candidates that are running in this election to condition U.S. aid to Israel on demands that are essentially hostile to Israel's interests, you rattle off an impressive list of things that make Israel an indispensable ally. What are the most important items of the U.S.-Israel relationship, and why should Democrat candidates wake up to this and not condition aid on Israel's domestic policies? Go back to 10,000 feet, and you have your answer. Israel, when it works with the United States on security issues, counterterrorism, intelligence, whatever we work on together, missile defense, Israel shares America's fundamental goals, values, and operational policies. Israel 
is that ally that you can give American aid to, you can give American training to, and by the way, they give us training as well in various areas, and know that when Israel goes to war, God forbid when Israel goes to war, the values that underlie that and the policies that underlie that align with America's policies and requirements. You're not going to find Israeli soldiers lining up and shooting Israeli people in the street. And by the way, you don't find them lining up and shooting Palestinian people in the street. You don't. So the most important thing is that the United States and Israel share fundamental democratic, free market, liberal, liberal small L policies. You can't say that about Lebanon. You can't say it about Iraq. You can't say it about Afghanistan, where we provide training for all kinds of people. You can say it for Israel. And by the way, I didn't hear any of those Democrat candidates say that they wouldn't fund the Lebanese armed forces. <laughs> Were they asked? Mm, probably not, but well, I'll ask. Well, we, we should. You know the Shoshana Bryan challenge on Middle East policy issues for the Democratic Party. They have to pass your you test go. to get muster to be the, the main candidate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, or you could frame the debate the first time one of them goes up against Trump. So... Uh, I, I just want to compliment you on this article that you wrote regarding the strategic logic of the U.S.-Israel relationship. I'm familiar with another article that came out seven years ago by Michael Eisenstadt and David Pollack of the Washington Institute that um, I think you've done a very good job updating. Uh, and and um, there's this great infographic, by the way, if I could just encourage you to look at it. It's on the Washington Institute's website. I'm always a big fan of complimenting fellow Middle East think tanks, especially when they do good work. Um, and Michael Eisenstadt is one of the best. But I would point out to you, Greg, that the origins of all of this is a 1979 piece that came out from JINSA called Israel is a Security Asset to the United States. And I've been updating that piece for 40 years. And, and that original body of work also deserves what's due. Uh, or, or what's just do, as maybe Rawls would call it, the distributive justice of the U.S.-Israel uh, uh, security <laughs> relationship. Give me a little bit more information on the Jewish Policy Center. What is it? What do you guys do? How does it contribute to the uh, uh, U.S. national security dialogue and debate? Okay. We are a small, I have to say that we are a small, um, slightly right of center think tank. We are affiliated with, but not part of, the Republican Jewish Coalition. And our job is to promote a strong U.S. national defense, a close U.S.-Israel security relationship, a strong Israel, and a um, limited government in the United States. So we spend a lot of time doing those things. My favorite is the U.S.-Israel security cooperation stuff. But the other stuff is really important. Just this morning I noticed, and if I can say this on your program, I love it, the government of the United States has just decided to start mining um, strategic minerals, which are necessary in uh, weapons development. Right, limited earth materials, them. as it's called. Rare earth yes. materials, RAM. We have been importing them, and the Chinese have been making it harder. And it's, they're imported not because we don't have them, but because we wouldn't invest in the infrastructure to mine them and use them. And guess what? Now we are. So from my point of view... That is as important a moment in American security development as anything I've seen, I think, in the last, I don't know, 10 years. We're not going to be beholden to China for those minerals. Whoa. Now, this is, might be a little bit of a, of, a, of, a, of a particular question, but there's this tendency for the Jewish American community, of which you're part of, which I'm part of, 
to um, really get involved in great debates, whether it's domestic policy, foreign policy, national security policy? Is there any interfaith policy center that focuses on maybe the Catholic Defense Center or the um, Hindu Policy Center? Or is this just a unique segment of the Jewish Policy Center, the Republican Jewish Coalition, the Jewish Institute for National Security Affairs? I mean, I think that there there is something unique about the Jewish community in this country where we are organized in all these different silos dealing with all these different topics. And that's something that's a heritage that going back thousands of years. But do you have any interfaith policy uh, uh, bodies that you work with? No. No interfaith bodies. Um, we are well represented in Washington with other Washington think tanks. But no, there's no um, corresponding Catholic or Hindu or other that I know of. If there is one out there and it wants to make itself known, we can talk about it, but no. Now, we, we had this event that took place on Monday in Washington, which was... Um, on the U.S. and Turkey, you know, setting the, the the relationship going forward. Is it an erstwhile ally? Is it a rogue state? And uh, one of the challenges that I put in my closing remarks to the Hellenic American Leadership Council, the American Friends of Kurdistan, and to the Armenian Assembly of America was everyone who has been disaffected by Turkey's policies has to get together in the same room and have a united front against Erdogan. Do you think the Jewish Policy Center would sign on to exploring that idea? Exploring for sure. And and I think that the more interfaith, intercultural, interpolitical, interregional, interreligious, whatever you want to call it, cooperation, the Eastern Mediterranean is getting close together. It's time for our uh, cousins here in the United States to do the same thing against our mutual, uh, to, to promote mutual alliances and to condemn those who will find themselves being mutual enemies. Shoshana Bryan, very good idea. Senior Policy Director of the Jewish Policy Center on this program, editor of InFocus Quarterly. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Greg. And that's all for this week, everybody. This is Greg Roman with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour on WWDB 860 AM, produced by Gary Gamble, Marilyn Stern, and the rest of the staff at the Middle East Forum. We'll be back with you next week. Have a good one.